Hey everybody, it's Chris and Rick Talk Guitars, and we have a special guest today, Nick Millward, a stalwart of the Seattle music scene, fronts a great band called the Riff Brokers, and he's a, a great old friend, and we are going to have a killer conversation with him today, uh, delving into everything music, everything, uh, everything else that we can think of. Welcome, Nick. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm very excited to be here on the pod. I've been a fan for a while and a good friend of, well, Chris is actually in that band, the Riff Brokers. That's right. And, and I've known you for a long time, Rick. Um, and you're mutual friends with an old friend of mine from the, you know, you guys go back to the eighties, you and Eric Olson. Yeah. When you were in the, uh, Puget Sound and he was in the, uh, so many bands, I forget, uh, <laughs> what was <laughs> the one where he had the big hair? The Eager Tones. Eager Tones. Yeah. I, yeah. Escape me for a second. Yeah. But well, yes, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm happy to, I'm real excited to be part of this pod because I'm a fan of the pod as well. Well, dude, thanks so much. We appreciate it. To start it off, I just want to kind of get your story, dude. Like, I know you're from Idaho originally. What got you into music in the first place? Well, both my mom and dad played guitar and, and they had a great record collection. They weren't together, so I kind of bounced back and forth <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> between the two households growing up so i i went to school in pocatello that's southeastern idaho and then spent the summers with my dad in the sun valley area and they were both you know hippies that had great vinyl collection you know from the 60s and the 70s of you know everything from the beatles and bob dylan and the birds into the like the singer songwriter stuff like john prine and Jerry uh -huh. Jeff Walker, Guy Clark. From the time I was four years old, I was singing John Prine songs instead of like Sesame Street songs or whatever <laughs> in, the, in the mid early mid seventies. So I, you know, I, I'm ten years younger than you guys. I was born uh -huh. in seventy one. That's kind of where I got turned on to music. And then by the time I was about six years old, <clears throat> and about seventy eight is when I really discovered the Beatles. I remember getting this big illustrated book that I still have about the Beatles career at a bookstore when I was six. I don't know what, it was like some weird past life regression thing. I have no idea, but I was just kind of like stuck, like feeling from the time I was a child, I was born in the wrong era. So that was a big deal. Uh, just kind of getting lost in front of the family stereo and I, I really wanted to be left alone so I could lift, listen to those records without anybody looking at me because I was very self-conscious about how emotionally charged the situation was when, you know, like the needle dropped and you hear the scratches on the vinyl and then the first chords kick into I want to hold your hand, that you know, that C to D and then the hand claps and just like all those sounds were just so mystical and, you know, mind altering to me this and it was kind of scary at the same time i mean you look yeah. at the the cover of that album meet the beatles and it has sort of that worn halo because it you know been in so many shelves for so long yeah those, those four half moon faces staring at you and they're very somber looking yeah. and very sinister kind of crazy that just like flipped the switch for me as far as the power of music and the mystery and the you know behind watching that disc circle around with the rainbow label and the 
and the sounds and the all the mechanics of the needle and stuff is just you, I don't think you ever forget that. Well, I think it's so cool that you mentioned that because I have a very similar experience. Even though we were born 10 years apart, um, I, you know, my parents had a record collection. My dad is a World War II guy, so he had a bunch of old big band stuff like Louis Armstrong, Stan Getz, and Miller, all that stuff. And But my mom was younger than him. So for some reason, the Beatles album they had was uh, Sgt. Pepper. And so I would do the same thing. I'd sit with the headphones and listen to that thing. And I was I was super young. I didn't know, you know, I, I was processing it similar to you're processing it. Like, what is this? Like, I had enough wherewithal to know it was good and, and or feel it was good. But it was just so same thing, mystical, watching that thing spin around, um, hearing the sounds. And then uh, I did get Meet the Beatles after that, too. And this, it, it's funny. Everything you said totally resonated with me. The cover um the song so it's just cool to hear you say that and i think that's the power of getting exposed to music at a generational level you know that fascinates me whether it's older siblings or parents or you know relatives at that time that i was getting into that that was the era when like kiss was the actual band that maybe i should have been turned on to and they scared the shit out of me man like <laughs> they seemed like scary ass monsters because, you know, if I was a teenager at that time, like you guys were, I would have been all like, cool, yeah, right on, you know. But as a, as a child in the mid to late 70s, I'd see Kiss on TV or whatever. And I was just like, I was a very timid, fearful child of everything. And they were just like way too scary for me. It was like, <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't cross over to them. That's funny. So it's so weird, you know, but. That should have been probably my jam at that time, but it, it wasn't. Chris, did you have similar experience kind of getting introduced to music, like from your parents' record collection or, or siblings? or? Not my pa My parents really didn't have a record collection. All my the music, when I was a young kid, came to me from the kitchen radio, which was on. And mostly my, my, my memories are from the summer of stuff pouring out of the kitchen radio. But when I really started exploring music on my own, it was from my best friend. His older brother who had a, a collection of i mean half of that his record collection is now in my record collection the same the same records it's just like it became my reference point for everything i ended up exploring as a young you know music fan i mean everything's like that's where i've heard david bowie martha hoople lou reed all of these artists kiss i mean he gave me and he was like 10 years older than my best friend and he gave us the first kiss record because he's like take this this is children music and we just love that that became our band and like nick was just saying you know 10 years prior to him nick finding the beatles we found kiss and that for you know for a good two years was our band it was like perfect kid music i mean it rocked it had hooks and it was there was this comic book element to it that we just totally fell for and yeah. that ran its course of about two years and then i thought the same thing as his older brother eventually like this is children's music and i moved on yeah. <laughs> that's awesome yeah my parents had no records i mean my mom did buy us like record players at some point and records and i remember this very clearly she bought me john denver's greatest hits jim croce's greatest hits and then some some of those like Tell samplers that had a bunch of stuff on it so that was like my first records i owned and then that's from awesome. there i met my best friend and that's when i started when i found rock and roll and the rest is history. 
Or Kistery. Kistery. Well, Nick, you also play guitar. Yeah. And were you influenced by both parents playing the guitar? Did that resonate with you? Or how did you get attracted to the guitar? Here's funny. It's it's really roundabout. Because I was so into the Beatles thing, the first thing that hit me was Ringo's drumming. And I wanted to be a drummer. And I actually, in sixth and seventh grade, I, I played drums or drum in the band and school band because, you know, guitar was a thing I, I was kind of shy from because it seemed like in order to be a guitarist, you had to be out front. And I was a very shy kid. I was like, well, I'm really into music, but man, that's a lot of pressure to be the guy in front which is ironic. This is what I be, actually became a front guy. <laughs> but I, my whole thing was, I love the way that uh, hi-hat sounds and that shit, you know, like if, if I'm going to be part of a band, I want to be part of that cool thing that happens behind the scenes, you know, then nobody, I'll be kind of safer behind the other guys or whatever. That was kind of my fantasy. There was no way that my parents were going to afford a full drum kit for me. That was, and there was nowhere I was going to practice. It was too loud. Right. And so at that time, you know, I, I was interested in guitar and I, my, my mom and my dad showed me chords and it was about that shift. It was that year of 83, 84, when I was 12 years old, that it was like, you know, my, my future with drums is not going to materialize. I, I can see that. And it's just a lot easier to go with guitar. There was this music store downtown Pocatello called Mike's Music. And that was a, music store that had all the sheet music that you needed to get for school and they had flutes and you know the re extra reeds and guitar strings all that stuff but they had this great side room they had like these electric guitar racks and they were on the floor level they weren't hanging on the wall they were like two rows of 10 guitars or something and those sort of uh you know floor racks so you could just sneak back there and grab an electric and and plunk on it it was just like this little magical place so that's when i made the decision to actively get one and it wasn't from that store it was from a different um pawn shop in pocatello called shamrock coins i saw a sunburst ibanez strat copy hanging up behind the counter and it was only like 230 bucks and i saved up my money my mom helped me get that and we put it on layaway and it was one of those things i i was putting money down every week and looking forward to it and it was something i dreamt about and i was just like thinking about that guitar and i was selling cookies and candies door to door to make money to to get it (laughs) and and i've told this story a bunch of times chris is probably sick to death of it but so i was in seventh grade and, and van halen was coming to town on the 1984 tour and they played the mini dome in may and my buddies were like hey are you gonna go to the van halen concert and i was like no i'm gonna save every last dime for this guitar so i for i i'm not gonna go to this van halen concert so i can get this guitar out a week earlier or whatever i'm really close so the the concert came and went the kids showed up at the school the next day with the cool tour t-shirts and i didn't have one and but i was like i still have that guitar so that was something that I don't regret. <laughs> well, that's dedication, man, to a to a cause to get that guitar. So you got this guitar. Did you take uh-huh. lessons, Paul, or did you had you kind of already known how to play 
based on your parents playing acoustic and you maybe plunking around on that? Before that guitar, about a year before I got that guitar, my dad got me one of those nylon string Spanish kind of acoustic guitars whatever uh-huh. and i hated it because it had like this really wide fretboard and it was really hard to and it's just you know i don't know if you guys enjoy those kind of guitars but i never had you know it's like shit this thing's hard to play and it's weird and my mom said well i'm gonna sign you up for these classical lessons so the first lesson the guy had me put my foot up on this little pedestal <laughs> thing and i had to hold the guitar a certain way like andre segovia or some shit and then and I, I had to read sheet music and plunk, 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 play it like a f- piano. And I was like, fuck this, man. Yeah. This is bullshit. <laughs> like, I, I do not like this guitar. I do not like this approach, you know. And I ended up putting that guitar in the yard when we had a yard sale one weekend. My dad found out about it and he was pissed. But I was like, I hated that thing, you know. I, like, I wanted nothing to do with it. So as soon as I got... The electric guitar, it was about the same time for Christmas. I got one of those um, that I still have, too, this uh, complete Beatles songbook that had all the chord charts in it for every song. And this this book is dilapidated. I've had it for, you know, 35 years or more, and it's just held together with duct tape and just completely fallen apart. All the sheets are loose. But I did self-study on that. That was my, the hugest thing of learning how to play guitar was just how to make those chord shapes how to eventually get my index finger to make those bar chords for those b minors and c sharp minors that are in all those songs to make it happen you know to come alive music for me didn't really take off until i learned those chord shapes that were in those tablatures and i never would have had the discipline or you know to or patience to sit and learn from anybody i just it was all self-study of figuring that stupid stuff out and that and that was you know what informed me for my whole guitar lifetime but the what was going on at the time was you know eddie van halen ingve malmstein you know and i there was no way i could i admired that stuff but there was no way if, if I knew how to do that, if I knew how to go wheelie-wheelie or tap or fucking make my fingers dance up and down the fretboard, I would have been on it. I, you know, I would have been the cool guy to impress all my friends or you know, whatever girl would be around. But that wasn't happening for me. I was like in my own shell, very self-consciously figuring out chords because uh, I w- it was just like being closeted. You know, like I would have been ruthlessly mocked and and ridiculed for you know adhering to the kind of music i want to learn how to play i think it's super cool though that that the bedrock of your playing is is that music i think it's cool because that you know as we all know now well i mean we kind of knew it then too that that that's kind of for me anyway beatles is one of the high bars of like just songwriting for pop music so to to kind of be steeped in that at an early age, I think is really cool and fortuitous for you because, you know, regardless of how you ended up there, you know what I mean? Because I mean, you know, I mean, I was into that too when I was younger, but I was also still in my formative years when, when the guitar God shit was going on or, or even before that Hendrix, I mean, I, I totally dug Hendrix, but, um, 
just as a songwriter, I think it's cool that you are steeped in like kind of songwriter music, you know? It was huge learning those chord progressions because I kind of knew from, you know, my parents listening to country and folk and stuff growing up, you know, your dad shows you three chords, CFG, all of a sudden you know what the 145 is. And it made sense to me, oh, GCD, that's another 145. I didn't know what 145 was at that time. But I understood the concept of this chord progression is the same thing in blues, country, folk, like you see it repeated over and over. Yeah. And and it's like the basis of and you could just learn three chords and that's the truth, right? But what the Beatles showed me is like, well, we can do the one, two, six, five, you know, whatever. They throw in these minor bar chords that it's like, well, it changes everything. Like five. Wow. And it, you know, it changes the mood. And so it was never for me about playing really fast scales up and down the neck. It was like the, the emotional feeling of how, when these chords change, how that, how that, you know, tugs at your, your feelings. (laughs) You were drawn to some cool shit when you were young, Chris. Well, as Nick was saying that I was kind of laughing to myself about a joke I'd made shortly after I joined the riff brokers because up to that point everything that i was playing in my own music and stuff that i was just drawn to to listen to was more based around like the stones and the faces and that those kind of chord progressions there just the pure you know rock and roll kind of roots based rock and roll yeah. and when i joined the riff brokers that's where nick's beetle chords started coming at me and i came up with this joke is how do you stop a stone space guitar player and <laughs> throw a beat at him and it took me a <laughs> Figure out how to deal with these weird ass chords and you know and in the end it was really great because i just learned how to you know play around different chords a, a little different and find the finding taking those weird chords in the middle eight or wherever they are and finding out what makes them tick and you know where i would usually just do some you know some stonesy type riffing stuff is like there's a there's a note in that chord that just gives it its entire essence so i'm going to find that and incorporate that into my melody and it was great it took me it threw me for a loop for a while but eventually i got over it so now i'm i'm kind of a beetle chords fan now and it really makes the song i mean you know just one of those like you know a, a major chord to the, the same chord minor is just like is so powerful in the context of a song and learning how to play over that so that your melody captures the essence of that chord progression is just a great thing for me well, I, I think it's funny too. Like I'm the same. I'm a I'm an introvert, and I was the same way. Nick, as a child, super shy, like painfully shy. I didn't want to stand out in any way, shape, or form. So, I I always think it's fascinating that people like us are drawn to be in a band and play in front of other people. <laughs> right. um, talk a little bit about that transition for you in terms of being that shy kid, loving music, feeling compelled to play it. And then how did you get into bands and and start wanting to perform? Okay, so this is how that went. So I was, you know, through my teenage years, high school years, I was, I went back and forth between my electric guitar and my acoustic guitar. And I kind of just did my own thing by myself. But my mom had a coffee house and and she actually had uh, folk people play there. And it's so we had Ramblin' Jack Elliott, of all people, came through yeah. town and played at our coffee house. And uh, my mom 
one of her friends had a had a son, and these guys were older. They were in college, and they were they were had this band that was called Syzygy, <laughs> and that's that that term is an astronomical term about planets lying up or something. It's really woo woo, you know, folky. But they they got together with a few originals, and they there were three of them on acoustic guitars and one guy on bongos. And they were doing a lot of Crosby, Stills, Nash stuff because they really liked working on their harmony thing. And they were just like idealistic college guys that wanted to have a folky kind of band. And, you know, they knew that I played and and I had access to the stand-up bass that my dad had. And it was just this old beat-up doghouse stand-up with two scratches on the neck, one for the third fret, one for the fifth. <laughs> and I learned as a kid how to do, you know, the eat shit bass line of the one, one, five, one, five, you know, that country back and forth kind of thing. So they approached me and said, Hey, would you like to be a part of this? I was like, shit, hell yeah. You know, I, I jumped at the chance. I was only 16 at the time, but I was able to play a few shows at my mom's coffee house. And then there was some, some sandwich shop that we played. And then we actually snuck me into a bar, played one bar gig, just, you know, under the radar for me being underage. And, and that was really great. And then I kind of, I'm about four to six months into it. It kind of just fizzled out, you know, cause I was 16. I wanted to kind of do more punk rock stuff. So it kind of just ran its course. And then I, you know, finished high school and I didn't really have any direction as far as going to college or whatever. I moved to the town where my dad was and I was just kind of directionless until I met some kids that were into drugs and heavy metal and stuff. And, and the only thing that I, the only way I could actually play music with other people is, is bass because nobody wants to play bass. Right. So right. somehow I, I got a hold of a, uh, a music master, like a, a really short scale yellow Fender bass and a really shitty gorilla amp or something. <laughs> and I was in this band called Ball Peen and the Violent Lobotomies. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, and that was like 1991. We played a few parties or whatever. And, you know, that was, that kind of ran its course too, until I finally, I was fed up with this small town scene and I finally made my way to Boise when I was about 21. There came a point where, I made a decision to be my own guy and write my own songs and be the front guy. And, and fortunately at that time, it was, it was the right time for, for me to find my people, you know, find people that could play with me that could figure out, you know, and at that time I was into more garage rock, Billy childish sort of like classic rock and roll meets punk rock and garage stuff. And there was, you know, an actual niche. It was actually, there's people that I can find that I can make bridge across these gaps of these people I couldn't find for the longest time in fucking shit kicker Idaho. Was there a pretty vibrant music scene in Boise at the time? Oh, yeah. So that was uh, when Doug Marsh moved back to Boise from Seattle after the tree people. And that's when Built to Spill took off. Oh, got it. That's right. And so I just happened to show up at the same time all that shit was happening. And so there was Cossack Resin, Butterfly Train. There was a definite, you know, cohesive scene that had been thriving since the early 80s. And it was an exciting time for Boise. It's a small town, so you know everybody, but I wasn't like 
in any cool bands that I was in the band that people made fun of. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that was, it, it was just exciting enough and vibrant enough to where it was like, fuck, I'm finally in a place in time where there's something happening. And so I did that and, and was part of that whole scene for like seven years until I moved to uh, Seattle. Yeah. So that was the 90s, the early 90s when you came to Seattle? No, no, the 2000. Oh, was, 2000. Oh, okay. Got it. Was it. Oh. The 90s when I went to Boise. I, I, I showed up in Boise in late 92 and I left in early 2000. When I first moved to Seattle, I was doing open mics, but I was lucky enough to... So Eric Olson, you know, we talked about him earlier. Yeah. I knew him before I was actually pen pals with him because when I was on tour with my band from Boise, you remember the Gibson house down on second and Stewart. Yeah. So our band played there a couple times. And the last time we played there was with Eric's band lower 48. And, um, we hit it off, you know, after we, he liked my band and I liked his band and, so it was before I really had email. We, we were pen pals when we went back to Boise. And so when he made the decision to move to Seattle, he was like my my guy and my contact. And through him, he had just recorded at Egg Studio, you know, Conrad's place over there <clears throat> near in the Bryant neighborhood. And and Johnny Sangster was the engineer. And when I finally was, you know, wanting to record he he pushed me that direction which was huge meeting with Oli, you know and and being introduced to people and finally go, getting into egg studio and recording with johnny just opened so many doors because then it's just like it wasn't a matter of time before we got our drummer and we got playing around town meeting kurt block um it just sort of just opened up that whole tribe of people to this day scott sutherland you know was after I saw the um, the model rockets, I I walked up to him and gave him a copy of our CD that we recorded at Egg, and he was in a bad mood because he just found out he was going through a divorce that day. <laughs> it was a weird timing of like meeting people, but we had a show in 2001 at the Break Room with Evangeline, and I don't know if we met Chris before that or not, but blown away by Evangeline. I didn't know that's how you and Chris met. Yeah, Chris, chime in here, because I don't know if, if we met before that, or what's your well, memory? That was, that was actually when we met. It was a break room show, and I remember, and we hadn't played together. We didn't play together for a while, but I remember you and Heather came up to me, and I think he's mentioned something about capos. It's like, look, he's using a capo, or something like that. <laughs> because you were, you did. I, I guess you hadn't seen a band in Seattle yet that had used a capo in like a rock context. Right. Yeah, and I'd I'd gone I got into my capo phase before I moved, you know, in my last years in Boise because I revisited, I got really deep into the Rubber Soul album again and started reading a lot about it, and that was the first Beatles album where they went to town with capos and got all those really high chimey sounds. I do have to add my one favorite Nick Millward guitar gear story. Oh, here it comes. Here it comes. <laughs> back this is a story that was related to me by nick is back when you ordered your yellow les paul special double cut special i don't remember the the retail you ordered it from but you cut the picture of the guitar that you ordered out of the 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 advertisement 
and carry it around in your wallet until it arrived. And I was just thinking about that the other day. It was Musician's Friend because I would get, I think I ordered something from them and the, the catalog would come in the mail on a regular basis. And I'd just gotten my my red one, you know, the the special with the two P100s in it a couple years before. And I flipped through that musician's friend and saw for $5.99 back then, it was 2003, Gibson had just started making those faded series of those juniors. Uh-huh. And it was like supposed to be a, a faded TV yellow double cut junior. And I just, I got infatuated with it. And it's true, dude. I, I cut it out of the thing and I had it in my wallet and I was looking at it and I was like, oh, can I get this? And I saved it up. It was just like I was 12 years old again, even though I was, you know, 32 years old. <laughs> and and I take it with me and I remember showing it to a guy at a show down at the Comet Tavern. I think it was Stu Miller. And um, I was like, I'm getting this guitar, man. I can't wait till it comes. And it, and it came and I still have it. And I still love it. And it's, I'm the first owner. It's the only guitar that I've been the first owner of. That's the beauty of guitars. It turns you into a 12-year-old every time. I mean, yeah. and anything in our lives that we can have that's like that, I'm 100% for. Yeah. 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 That's Me what too. I would take away from being a guitarist is those magical moments of, like, I, if my house was on fire, you know, you would grab these objects and run out. You would risk your life to grab these certain objects because they just have, you have such an emotional connection with them. It's, yep. it's weird. Yeah. They're more than stuff. It's mo- much more than just stuff. I have lots yeah, of stuff and I don't care about stuff, but guitars are different. Yeah. I love it. Well, dude, I want to thank you for being on the show because um, it's just so fun to talk about, you know, your history and how you got into music and guitar and everything else. And, that's the stuff that Chris and I really dig is just, is just hearing, you know, people talk about what these things mean to them and, and how it relates to guitar and music and everything else. So yeah, I want to thank you so much for being on the show and, and thanks for listening out there. Uh, check us out on Chris and Rick talk guitars.com and on Apple podcasts and Spotify. Thanks, Nick. Thank you guys so much. Thanks, Nick. All right. Let's hear that room full of guitars song. (laughs) 